a Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. It's June 18, 1977, in Alexander City, Alabama. The chapel at the House of Hutchison Funeral Home is packed with people. 300 mourners have come to honor the memory of 16-year-old Shirley Ann Ellington. People are saying their final goodbyes at the open casket funeral. Many are weeping. They're filled with grief. But at the service, there is also an underlying feeling of rage. Shirley Ann Ellington's sister looks at the Reverend Willie Maxwell. He's sitting toward the front of the chapel, and there is not a tear in his eye. This is the funeral for his wife's adoptive daughter, and he is stone-faced. Shirley's sister can't stand it. Someone yells at Reverend Maxwell, you killed Shirley Ellington, and now you're going to pay for it. And as if on cue, a man in a green suit stands up from the pew in front of the Reverend and pulls out a gun. Three loud bangs ring out. Blood spatters onto the Reverend's face. And as he tries to wipe it away with his handkerchief, he collapses onto the red velvet pew. The hundreds of mourners stampede out of the church as reporters rush forward to photograph the lifeless body of Reverend Willie Maxwell. The gunman is immediately arrested by nearby traffic cops and taken away. But the truth of the matter is the people inside the church, after witnessing the killing of their local pastor, aren't calling out for justice. What they feel is relief. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema, and this is Crime of a Lifetime. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our story does not necessarily begin with 36-year-old Robert Burns. But it ends with him, because he's the guy in the green suit, the guy that just pulled a pistol and shot Reverend Maxwell. He is also the uncle of Shirley Ann Ellington. And so when he heard the news that Shirley had died, he drove 800 miles to Alabama for this funeral. Pack and heat. And listen, we don't know for sure who shouted the accusation at Reverend Maxwell right before he was shot. Some reports say it was Robert Burns himself. Some say it was maybe another person at the funeral. Yeah, but one thing's for sure. is It, it makes it a very dramatic moment, oh, right? yeah. Yeah, it feels like something that would just, like, happen in a theater. Don't bring John Wilkes Booth into this. <laughs> <laughs> if it was someone else, it makes you wonder, was this planned? Was this all coordinated? Was that Robert Burns' cue? I mean, the timing feels suspect. Well, everybody saw this, and after it happens, he confesses to the crime. Not once, but twice. According to the cops who arrested Robert, when they arrived, Robert Burns is standing over the reverend's body saying, you mistreated my family for long enough. And Burns 
also told his brother that he, quote, had to do it and that he'd, quote, do it again if he had to. And listen, while we do have the confession, it's not really like we needed it. There really wasn't any doubt. He committed the crime in broad daylight before a crowd of 300 mourners. It seems like the prosecutor, it's a no-brainer. It's a slam dunk. But then again, nothing is as it seems in this story. Tom Radney's the defense attorney that will take up Robert Burns' case in June of 1977. And you got to get ready for a pretty wacky work history here. Let me go over the guy's resume. Mm -hmm. Past clients include Reverend Willie Maxwell. (laughs) He represented him for the past seven years, and now he's repping the guy that killed him. It seems to me like that could be a conflict of interest, or is he going to break attorney-client privilege now that he's dead? But it gets even crazier, right? Because he tells the press that he would never have represented the reverend again, that he was done with him. Whoa, he's getting very personal. Well, yeah, it also is an easy claim to make when your former client is no longer seeking your services. Why? Because he's dead. But there might be another reason that Radney says this. In order to help get his current client off, Robert Burns, he needs to make sure that the jury sees that Reverend Maxwell is the villain of this story. Well, that's pretty complicated, though, because even if you get the jury to say, sure, he's a bad guy, we don't typically run around giving free passes to people who shoot bad guys. This isn't the last of us. Or Monopoly, where you can get a card that is a get-out-of-jail-free card. Right. Well, you know what? He does not pass go, does not collect 200 He doesn't get that get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, instead, he has to find a different way to try to get them to acquit his client. And Tom Rodney, he can't say that Robert Burns didn't do it. Everybody saw him do it. He can't say it was an accident because, again, everybody saw him do it. He only has one card to play, and that's pleading insanity. Right. So here comes his defense, right? He's building his defense. He asserts that even members of Reverend Maxwell's own family have tossed out the accusation that the Reverend was the one responsible for the death of Shirley Ann Ellington, right? It's like if Reverend Maxwell's family is claiming this, like how how could you not believe them? So Enter Robert Burns, right? This guy, a little bit about him. He served in the Vietnam War, and I think it's worth noting that he is dealing with what probably we today would call PTSD. So when he hears these rumors that Reverend Maxwell is the one that killed his niece, he does sort of the only thing he can think of in that moment. He kills the man that kills his niece. And by asserting this like PTSD sort of insanity claim, that's the reason he did it, and he's hoping to get him off. Yeah, because that's his only way of avoiding the death penalty. In fact, well, beyond, beyond avoiding the death penalty. If he successfully does this, he won't even be committed. He won't face any jail time. Nothing will happen, sort of. He's going to get a walk away. That's that's pretty wild. I mean, that is a wild assertion because it's just basically condoning vigilante justice, right? We don't want to think of trials as popularity contests, but... In this instance, if he paints his own guy out to be driven to insanity by how much the reverend sucked, just how much of a monster he was, 
maybe the jury is likely to say, okay, plausible. That would have actually driven me mad too. You know, or right. maybe they'll at least pretend to see it that way because ultimately in their minds they're saying, you know what, insane or not, I'd have pulled the trigger. I feel like we keep talking about how bad this guy, Reverend Willie Maxwell, was. And I think it's really important for us to sort of do a deep dive into his history and what would have led his attorney to flip on him and defend the guy who killed him. When you hear the name <laughs> Reverend Willie Maxwell lives in the South, you would assume that he's well-liked by the people in his community. I mean, he's a man of God after all. People go to church every Sunday, they hear his sermons, and by all accounts, this guy, Reverend Willie Maxwell, is a very good preacher. As one of his parishioners put it, he could pray a prayer that could make this house move. He would sing, and he knew the Bible front to back. Okay, so he has a photographic memory, and he isn't tone deaf. I'm point. I'm not swayed. I'm as a jury, you're not convinced. And neither were his neighbors, because after his death, reporters are running around. They're trying to get an idea of who this guy is. You know, who this victim was. And the general feeling about this killing is not sadness. It is relief. People right. were scared of this guy, right? Like they were scared of this reverend. The only person that ends up speaking up in support of him is his widow, Ophelia. And she says, My lord, he hath importuned me with love in honorable fashion. Did she say that? No, she didn't. That's an Ophelia. Who says? Just, I was trying to show you that I read Hamlet. Wow. Everybody know Quinn went Are to theater impressed? school. Quinn went to theater school. <laughs> no, what she says is all these rumors, they're bunk. And these rumors, I don't even know if we should call them rumors. It's... It's linked to a long history of run-ins with the law. And remember, these are all run-ins that Tom Radney helped Reverend escape. Dare I say, where there's smoke, there's fire. But there's also whispers about Reverend Willie Maxwell's character. Some say that, listen, he doesn't practice what he preaches. He's not the pious guy he claims to be that his proximity to the church was just a disguise to hide something even more sinister. Rumor has it that Reverend Maxwell performed rituals in the woods of Coosa County and that his true faith required human sacrifice? That's a rumor. Jeez Louise. That's, that's an enormous rumor. I feel like this is a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is a, this is a Satanist in preacher's clothing? <laughs> to quote Lindsay Lohan, I'm sick of rumors starting. I'm sick of being followed. I'm sick of people saying what they want to say about me. <laughs> You're quoting a lot of people today. I don't know. Maybe one of them will stick. <laughs> you can keep trying. <laughs> I, I don't know about you. I'm like sort of getting satanic panic vibes. I feel like the human sacrifice thing is a, it's a bridge too far for me. I wasn't there. But is this actually going to be our second well, story about Satan worshiping that no. men of the cloth do? Because, you know, we got to maybe branch out. Spoiler alert, no. But I think what we can probably determine is that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. These rumors are pretty wacky. Um, it seems like they've gotten out of control, but it also seems like they had to start somewhere, right? And I think that the seed of all this comes from Reverend Maxwell's first marriage. Now, he was not a great husband. Actually, according to the book Furious Hours by Casey Sepp, he might have cheated on his wife a few times. 
And again, I'm no expert. I never claim to be in Bible studies, but isn't there a passage about adultery, cheating? Do you remember, Quinn? Well, in the Bible? I haven't yeah. read the Bible. <laughs> Look at who you're fair. talking to. <laughs> That's fair. Well, I'm not in a hotel right now. I have no reference point. <laughs> Spoiler alert. It's not a cool thing. The Bible doesn't yeah. love cheating. His first wife is this woman named Mary Lou Edwards, and the two of them, they get married in April of 1949, and as the time suggests, she goes right from her family home to her marital home, and it seems like this marriage is less about love and companionship and more about of what was expected of them, right, as young Christians and young adults. It's like you get married, you settle down, and that's what they did. And yeah, Mary Lou at the time is a seamstress and laundress. Um, she eventually goes to work for a big uh, apparel manufacturer. But even though uh, she's got a good job, they're still really struggling financially. Yet he's not a reverend at this point. In fact, he's a sharecropper and a pulp wood worker. And from what I assumed about this operation is it required a lot of pulp friction. Oh! Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Anyway, he's pretty well liked at this job. One of his supervisors actually said that he is one of the most dependable, outstanding employees. Yeah, Great but review. this isn't this isn't his dream job. Like he wants to preach. That's his passion. I'm, and I'm sure I'm probably missing a good link here to get to like son of a preacher man through Pulp Fiction. But I, I don't know what that is. Jesus turned water into wine and Willie Maxwell turned pul- wood into pulp. So, <laughs> OK, we, you know, hot we've got a lot jump. of beverages, uh, a lot of beverage magic happening. Over the next couple of decades, he does get ordained as a minister, and he goes to Baptist revivals to preach and convert new members to the church. So he's out night after night preaching up a storm, and it's around this time that Mary Lou starts to get phone calls from young women asking to talk to her husband, the Reverend. They call throughout the day, and they're kind of mean to Mary Lou. They're pretty testy Mm. with her. Um, When she tells them that the Reverend is not available, they seem to get upset with her. It's almost like they're possessive of him, which leads Mary Lou to believe that these women are um, are looking for more than the word of God from her husband. The only boy who could ever reach them was her husband, the preacher man. Oh, see, I found it. <laughs> Mary Lou, uh, she suspects these women are his mistresses. But as disappointing as that is, She's not planning to leave him. When she's married, she's married. And even, okay, even in January of 1970, Reverend Maxwell ends up legitimizing one of the kids he had out of wedlock as his own. And Mary Lou doesn't leave then. She stays with him. Although I wouldn't have liked to be there when she found out. I'm sure that was not pretty, that conversation. Yeah, they been together 21 years at this point, right? And she had her suspicions all along, and it's confirmed when he legitimizes this child. And for a minister, having an affair is a very scandalous thing. But the scandal is sort of short-lived because in a split second, the scandal is not the affair. It's a tragic death. Because at the end of 1970, Mary Lou Edwards is found murdered, and police are pointing the finger at the person closest to her, her husband, the Reverend. Here's what we know. On the night of August 3rd, 1970, Reverend Maxwell is out of town in Auburn, Alabama, to preach at a Baptist revival. 
Mary Lou decides to stay back to visit with her sister. The only other person to see her that night was Dorcas Anderson, the next-door neighbor. According to Reverend Maxwell's story, he gets home that night around 11 p.m., and Mary Lou isn't there. And by 2 o'clock in the morning, she's still not home. So then he calls Dorcas, his next-door neighbor, and asks when she last saw Mary Lou. He then calls family to see if she's staying with her sister or her mom, but nobody has seen her, and this goes on for hours. So finally, Reverend Maxwell calls the police. So they head out to the reverend's house. They get there early in the morning, and he says, look, I was preaching all night. I tried to call Mary Lou from a service station on the way home. She didn't pick up. Here's where we're at. So the police go and talk to the next-door neighbor, Dorcas Anderson. She was seemingly the last person to see Mary Lou. Now, she tells the police about a conversation she had with Mary earlier that day. And then she also tells them that she saw Mary Lou at 10 o'clock that night. Yeah, and when she saw her, Mary Lou seems kind of upset, kind of flustered, and is saying, oh, I just got a call from my husband. He's been in a bad car accident, and I have to go pick him up. So she leaves, never returns, but guess who does? Reverend Willie Maxwell does, and his car looks totally fine. Upon hearing this information, Maxwell decides that Mary Lou must have been in a car accident. And so he and the police go out searching for her and her car. Wait, that is like, hold it. That's weird to me. Stop yes. right there just because I'm like, what about what we just told you says to you she got in a car accident, just that she left in a car? Well, yeah, I think it's like if she's not returned, if she got in a car, the only explanation is she must have been in a car accident. It's not too much of a stretch if your relationship is good. Okay, it just seems like a specific guess to me is all I would say. Yeah, I wonder who came up with this idea that it could have been a car accident because pretty soon into their search, they do find her car parked on the shoulder of Highway 22, 12 feet from the asphalt beside a stand of trees. It looks like the car is parked, but the engine is running and the headlights are still on. When they approach the driver's side window, they see that Mary Lou is in the car and her dress is covered in blood. There are lacerations on her body, grains of sand and bits of leaves in her mouth. More sand and leaves stuck to the dress. And the coroner would later find a half-inch dark bruise around Mary Lou's neck, as well as ligature marks. The coroner who does the autopsy concludes that Mary Lou was beaten to death after someone tried and failed to strangle her. It appears that she was taken into the woods, murdered, and then returned to her car for this sort of scene that they found her. But why? Well, prosecutors believe that Reverend Willie Maxwell lured her there and killed her to cash in on a number of life insurance policies he took out in her name. But other folks start spreading rumors that are way more sinister, um, even, let's say, touching the paranormal realm. Some believe that Reverend Maxwell had gone to Louisiana and learned voodoo and that he killed his wife, Mary Lou, as part of a ritual. And I tell you, that explanation, while, you know, kind of over the top and crazy, which I love, seems ridiculous. Well, it just bolsters my belief that I will never take a life insurance policy out on myself. But Don't let's put a target honest, on your back. The easiest explanation is usually the right one. This guy had how much money in his wife's name and she ends up murdered? To me, it's a no-brainer. 
I just, yeah, I don't know why they needed to um, national inquire the situation. Yeah, add the occult to it. I don't know why they needed to make it more inflated, more insane. Like, it's already a really sad, dark story. I, I guess I'm just surprised that... This woman has been murdered. It, and it feels very clear. It's sort of like, right. this woman got killed, this is how he benefited, and instead we're going to be like, or was it voodoo? This tragedy, of course, makes its way to the courts. And our guy, defense attorney Tom Radney, represents Reverend Maxwell in the trial for the murder of Mary Lou Maxwell. He also happens to represent the Reverend in several other cases against the insurance companies who refuse to pay out the life insurance. Yeah, there's got to be a lot of money in it for him because um, I sort of picture a cycle of when my client money put a bunch of it in my pocket, start again. Because there's a lot of lawsuits this guy is going to generate. I should also mention that alongside Reverend Willie Maxwell, the prosecutor initially indicted a co-conspirator, a woman named Ophelia Burns, but they ended up dropping the charges. So the Reverend is charged alone. And this trial lasts a day. Well, right, because the big star witness for the prosecution is none other than the neighbor, Dorcas Anderson. But when she takes the stand, her story completely changes. She claims that she doesn't remember seeing Mary Lou that night. She also doesn't remember anything about the Reverend being in a car accident that would have provoked Mary Lou to leave. Instead, she ends up providing an alibi for Reverend Maxwell and insists that there's no possible way that he could have had anything to do with Mary Lou's death. Dorcas! My God. What the heck just happened? <laughs> what what changed the your mind? Switcheroo. Yeah, it's it's wild because this is actually what ensures that the Reverend gets an acquittal and the jury finds him not guilty. And he's also given access to that life insurance money. He and his lawyer, Tom Radney, were suing for like eighty thousand dollars and they get it. That's a lot of money. <laughs> it's not nothing. This just must have been such a shock to the prosecution when Dorcas does this about face and totally throws their case out the window. I can't even imagine. Well, they're going, what the heck, what the heck? And then two months go by and plot twist, Dorcas Anderson becomes Reverend Maxwell's second wife. Okay. It's making more sense now, right? It is becoming clearer. Well, here's my question to you. Do you think this was brewing between them before the trial so she did this? Or, or hear me out, do you think that her changing the testimony was her way of asking him on a date? Like she's (gasps) like, hey, it looks like you're not going to jail. You must have Saturday free. I mean, we'll never know the answer, right? But to be a fly on the wall, I'm wondering if he's sweetened the deal being like, I'm about to come into some money And did he use that to entice her to change her testimony? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, presumably it would be both their money in in the sense that if they get married, it sort of becomes a shared uh, ownership of of the 80,000. Spoiler alert. Romance is in the air (laughs) because, well, just wait and see. People in Coosa County, Alabama are hearing about this case and... As you probably would assume, it's not sitting well with them. This guy is charged with killing his wife. The star witness flips to his side at the very last second, and then the star witness marries the accused. 
Listen, this story is sensational enough, but you know what people love more than murder and sex, Quinn? Avocado toast? Yes. And the supernatural. Ah. Adding the voodoo rumor makes it the talk of the town. The toast, yeah. the avocado toast of the town, it Makes if you it will. the toast of the town. The <laughs> avocado toast, that is. You know, when I think of um, voodoo, I think of, like, voodoo dolls, right? And totally. witch doctors, and dark magic. I'm going to just assume that the folks in Coosa County have the same uh, wealth of knowledge that I do in that department. So they're probably, when they're gossiping, picturing the reverend in, like, a cool voodoo outfit with candles and a voodoo doll just, like, manipulating Dorcas. And they started to even wonder, did this guy voodoo the jury, too? Okay, to be clear, I feel like I have to speak in defense of voodoo, okay? Mm. Because voodoo is actually the bastardization of a West African religion called voodoo. And a lot of our ideas about dark magic and voodoo dolls are just misunderstandings of that religion. So for all intents and purposes, when we refer to Reverend Maxwell's alleged voodoo practice, we are talking about the bastardized version, not the actual religion. There. Okay. That was a disclaimer. Let's continue. All right. You're no fun, but okay. All these rumors about the Reverend, they have people scared. Of course they do. Sure, but for the ones that aren't, they're about to be because a year after Dorcas and the Reverend get wed, she's found dead. Quinn, you know, they say how you get them is how you lose them. Dorcas, you lost them the way you got them. A dead <laughs> wife. like just a wealth of knowledge today. <laughs> so many good uh, little sound bites there. <laughs> Actually, though, not only is she found dead, I think what's so creepy is that she's found in a very familiar scenario reminiscent of Mary Lou's death. A few men in a truck see a car idling on the shoulder of Highway 9. The headlights are on. The car has some damage. The right corner's a little crumpled up. And then half the windshield is cracked. When they look inside, they see Dorcas face down with her head on the passenger side and her feet on the driver's side. The coroner does the autopsy and finds bits of leaves in Dorcas' sandals, which reminds me of how Mary Lou was found with the leaves and sand in her hair and in her mouth. There are a few small abrasions on her shoulders and elbows and a larger cut above her right eye. However, they conclude that Dorcas's cause of death is acute respiratory distress. And guess who tries to collect on not one, not two, but 17 life insurance policies in Dorcas's name shortly after her death? You? No! Reverend Willie Maxwell! Ugh, that does make more sense. 17? 17! How much, how long were you paying those premiums? That's expensive. That's a lot of paperwork, but it's paying off, literally. And as you can probably guess, the Reverend has more than a few life insurance policies left to cash in. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now it's 1974, and with the mysterious deaths of two spouses and rumors swirling around town that this guy's a voodoo priest— Reverend Willie Maxwell, he's a preacher now without a pulpit because churches in Alabama are just not interested in hosting him. His parishioners are scared of him. And the only person who seemingly isn't terrified of him is the person who should be most terrified of him. It's his third wife, Ophelia Burns. Remember her? The unindicted co-conspirator in the trial over Mary Lou Maxwell's murder? Yeah, not a good look. Yeah, I guess Ophelia, she thinks she can beat the odds, and she has become the reverend's third wife. Ophelia, she's adamant in her defense of him. She says there's no proof he did anything wrong. But really, her saying that, now being his wife, it's like the same as when your mom says you're cool. You can't really rely on that as testimony. Hey, my mom never said I was cool. (laughs) (laughs) So since he's been kind of blacklisted from the whole church thing and he can't go back to preaching, Reverend Maxwell decides to move on to some other opportunities. He actually starts a pulp wooding business, and I'll save you the pun unless, Quinn, you have one. Whittle by whittle? (laughs) Very good. I wasn't going to ply wood it out of you. (laughs) Okay, he he ends up using this life insurance money to buy land off of Highway 9 to start working with a timber company. Of course, the rumors are still following him to this gig as well. So he has to get ahead of them and go to all his clients and sort of explain it away before they hear. And, you know, it works because he's really charming and his superpower is the power of persuasion. So his business grows and he hires some more guys to join him. And one of the guys he hires is his nephew, James Hicks. And according to James Hicks' wife, the reverend starts to act weird around them. In one incident that she recounts, she and her husband Hicks are driving when the reverend pulls up right next to them and gets them to park on the side of the road. He then has like a secret conversation with James Hicks, but his wife never finds out what they talked about. 
It was probably just sports. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. Later on, James Hicks's wife actually learns that Ophelia Maxwell is trying to learn James's social security number. And that sounds like a really boring thing to want to do. And a weird thing to ask someone. Oh, casual conversation, what's your social? I would never ask anyone for their social security number. Never. On Valentine's Day 1976, James Hicks goes missing. And yet again, this story repeats itself. Just two days later, James Hicks' Pontiac Firebird is found on the side of Highway 9. Remember, the same highway that Dorcas was found? His body is inside with no sign of injury. And police, they can't find a cause of death. But Hicks's wife is absolutely 100% certain that Reverend Willie Maxwell is the man responsible. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say me too. Because <laughs> again, agree. upon James Hicks's death, the Reverend collects life insurance with the help of his trusty lawyer, Tom Radney. In the year after James Hicks' mysterious death, state investigators descend on Coosa County. They find plenty of people willing to accuse Reverend Maxwell of trying to hire them to kill James Hicks. And the motive is obviously clear. It's the life insurance payouts. But with no cause of death, there's no way to prove that James Hicks was murdered. They don't know how he died. Their hands are tied. And like in so many cases before... Reverend Maxwell is off the hook. My God, he must be getting more and more powerful. Yeah, I mean, he must be saying to himself, why would I stop? These people are idiots. What is he doing to his own voodoo doll? He's handing it life insurance payouts. <laughs> My God. Along with continuously getting off the hook in these deaths, in these murders, his reputation grows even more and more sinister. His powers are so strong that he can seemingly kill with no consequence. It's as if he can manipulate anyone, including the state authorities. He's just untouchable. It's no wonder many people are terrified of him. Even those closest to him are not safe. On Saturday, June 11, 1977, teenager Ann Ellington and her adoptive mom, Ophelia Maxwell, go out for ice cream while the reverend is at work. Shirley's actually the daughter of Ophelia's relative, but Ophelia and the Reverend took her in to raise her. So Ophelia and Shirley get home around 7, and Shirley's a teen. She's not ready to be in for the night. It's 7 o'clock, for goodness sake. She'd like to go out and, I don't know, see some friends, party. I don't know what was on the schedule, but she'd like a little more fun. So she is going to borrow the Reverend's car and go out, but she never comes back. Ophelia and Reverend Maxwell wait a couple of hours for Shirley Ann to come home, but she doesn't come home. So they go to the local police to file a missing persons report. And when they get there to file this report, they are informed that the police have already found 16-year-old Shirley. They lead the Maxwells out to a patch of land near a cemetery just off of the infamous Highway 9. And there they find Reverend Maxwell's 1974 Ford Torino, and under it is Shirley Ann Ellington. Yeah, so it looks like what happened is the front tire on the driver's side of the car got flat, so Shirley had gotten out and jacked 
up the Ford and loosened uh, the lug nuts with a tire iron. I don't know why I'm saying this with such authority. I've never changed a tire. Um, she tried to pull the wheel from the axle, but then I guess it slipped from under the jack. And the idea is that the full weight of the car fell on her, crushing her. It, what it looks like is a terrible accident. Well, that's what it appears to look like, but I don't think anyone believes it for a second considering who this girl is related to, Reverend Maxwell. Because with Reverend Maxwell, it's never as it seems. So they start to investigate this scene further, and the police realize that this accident seems staged. For one, the tire that Shirley was changing isn't actually flat. And her hands, they're totally clean. There's not a bit of dirt or grease or oil on them. From the experts who are looking at this case, it just seems off, right? They, they say that even the lug nuts, they're not where they're supposed to be if you were to change a tire. It's just nothing is adding up. <laughs> right. Well, I'm glad they're investigating this then and not me. Wouldn't have spotted it. But all these inconsistencies lead the investigators to look a lot more carefully at this scene. And then the autopsy shows that Shirley was strangled before the car ever fell on her. And while we can't say definitively who did this, the rumors start to spread, right? There's the obvious choice, the one that's at the top of our minds, Reverend Willie Maxwell. And these rumors spread through Shirley's extended family and make its way to Uncle Robert Burns, who believes it with such certainty that he is willing to stake his soul on it. That brings us back to September of 1977, in a courtroom where Robert Burns is sitting with Reverend Willie Maxwell's old lawyer at his side, Tom Ratney. Now, it is the hottest month of summer in Alabama, and this courtroom is packed to the gills. Everybody's sweaty. It's hot as hell in here. And the judge has allowed the media, but no cameras. And there are 12 jurors sitting ready to issue a verdict. This is not an easy case for Tom Ratney to argue. I mean, his past experiences, he's had the benefit of not knowing all the facts. So it's been easier to sort of deny these claims. We know for a fact that Robert Burns shot Reverend Willie Maxwell in broad daylight. And he did it in front of 300 witnesses. And after the fact, he even confessed to the crime twice. So it's not a question of whether or not he did it. Right. But it's also kind of tricky because when they look into Robert Burns, he does have a criminal record going back a few years. Here's the thing. Tom Radney, he's a really good lawyer. You'd freaking have to be to have gotten Reverend Willie Maxwell free and rich for this long. He's really good at keeping his cool in the courtroom, and the prosecutor in this case is not. He's having little bits of uh, temper tantrums and angry outbursts, and I think the judge is over it. Um, Tom does manage to get the judge to rule the confessions and the criminal record in this case are inadmissible. Also in the defense's favor is the fact that the guy who performed the autopsy on Reverend Willie Maxwell is the same person who performed autopsies on many of the reverend's alleged victims. So when it comes time for the cross-examination, they're able to paint the reverend as a killer. They're able to sneak in a few questions about him being a voodoo doctor, too. Yeah, and it's crazy to think the voodoo stuff would be admissible, like in any realm, but... 
I, I do think once you just say it in any mm-hmm. context, it's going to be impossible for the jury to forget it. And all the rumors flying around in general, they paint quite a picture when the jury's considering Robert Burns' state of mind during this killing. Psychologists also give credence to the insanity plea, and so does Robert's wife. But what really seals the deal for Robert Burns and his lawyer, Tom Radney, was that the jurors were not allowed to know what would happen if they found the defendant not guilty by reason of insanity. The judge wouldn't tell them. He thought it would prejudice the verdict to know that Robert Burns would essentially go free. Yeah, I imagine it would have. Um, That's a lot to take on responsibility-wise in a case like this. Like, if you find this person not guilty, that's it. They walk. Right. That's big. So on September 27th, 1977, at 10.30 p.m., the jury returns to render their verdict. And Robert Burns is found not guilty. Robert holds his head in his hands, and his wife, Vera, cries. This is crazy, but the courtroom actually erupts into applause. It's just really, like, that's wild to me. That is not the atmosphere you expect in a murder trial. Yeah, but that is the emotion you'd expect to punish someone like Reverend Maxwell, who's literally gotten away with murder. Yeah, and murder of a child, no less. Mm-hmm. Robert is taken to a mental hospital to be evaluated. And, of course, they don't really find anything to be wrong with him. And he's sent home to his family a few weeks later. He did get off scot-free. After the jury hands down this verdict, the Montgomery Advisor publishes an article entitled Voodoo in Tallapoosa. And in it, a reporter writes, It is hard to escape the conclusion that the Tallapoosa County jury was not merely rendering a verdict, but was rendering absolution when it found Robert Louis Burns not guilty of any crime when he killed, executed, is perhaps a better word, the mysterious Reverend Willie Maxwell. It's so interesting that these this media attention really focused, zoomed in on the voodoo of it all, because I have to tell you, this story is bonkers, cuckoo, banana pants, independent of the voodoo. Like, I don't even need the voodoo to think this story is absolutely crazy. You know what I mean? No, I mean, it's it's what we in the biz call nutso McButzo. We it's, call it, I just think the voodoo part of it is a hat on a hat, which is an improv <laughs> okay, term. Yeah, it's just I like too it. many, like, like there's like so many hats. Like the fact that this guy, Reverend, which I hate that we call him Reverend, but this guy, Willie Maxwell, just essentially got away with murder. Time and time and time and time again. It's wild. Well, to that me. that's funny you say that because I I I think the most interesting character in this story is Tom Radney because, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think we talked about. Of course, you're not gonna. <laughs> it's easy to say I'm not gonna defend him anymore. That was one murder too many, <laughs> and now I'm going over to the other side. And it's like, yeah, you're not gonna defend him. He's dead. But I I would also say that um, there's a part of me that wonders if he felt like. I've really got blood on my hands at this point, and this is right. the only way I see forward to wiping it off is trying to fu- to make sure the man that killed this guy that I protected for so many years doesn't serve a day. Right? I, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when Tom Randy gets the call that Reverend Maxwell was killed. Well, the year that this case settled, he 
was named Alexander City's Man of the Year. Whoa. Also, I'm dying for you to tell. Well, okay, it's so funny because we were, when we were recording this, I don't know about you, Quinn, but I kept wanting to say Radley instead of Radney. Which like is Boo Radley. Like Boo Radley from To Kill a Mockingbird. And I do think there is a very interesting tie-in to Harper Lee, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. And I would love for you to tell us, Quinn. It's such a hard story to talk about if only because it's so fraught with, like, the idea that after writing To Kill a Mockingbird, she got really paranoid that she was going to be, like, this one-hit wonder. And she got she became kind of an alcoholic and a lot of people were like, what's going to become of you? And then she followed Truman Capote while he was doing research to write in cold blood. And she was like, I'm going to do this story and I'm going to like figure out everything there is to know about it. And she was spent years interviewing everyone that ever had a conversation with the Reverend. And all the time, Tom Radney was helping her and gave her all his case files and was like, you can take all of this to help you write uh, the book that you're writing, and I'm mm-hmm. really interested to see the result. And so she had his boxes and boxes of case files and documents, and he kept being like, how's the book going? And she kept being like, it's almost done. It's crazy. It's almost done. And there was always a reason he couldn't see it. And it feels like she had, like, severe writer's block and couldn't make the book work. And then I know that his family now, Tom Radney's family, has been, like, seeking to try to recover those documents and that everyone has said that Harper Lee gave it to another writer to hopefully write this book. But, like, that hasn't come to fruition and all the documents about all his many cases. She never gave them She died. This case is truly bonkers. And I know we focused a lot on the accused, the suspect, Reverend Willie Maxwell, but I also want to point out the victims of this story who are Mary Lou Maxwell, Dorcas Maxwell, James Hicks, and Shirley Ann Ellington. And I have to say there's also a very, very real possibility that there were more victims. But these are the ones we focused on. And you know, Listen, I do not condone vigilante justice, but a little silver lining in this story is that maybe, just maybe, some of the families do feel like justice was served in the end. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most helpful were the following. The book Furious Hours by Casey Sepp, an article in the Atlanta Constitution entitled Voodoo Priest Buried But Whispers Live On by Jim Stewart, an article in the Alabama Journal entitled Autopsy Shows Girl Dead Before Tire Rim Accident by Lou Elliott, and an article in the New York Times entitled Alabamian is acquitted in slaying of suspect in a series of deaths. If you'd like to learn more about this case, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, a Television Network, LLC. All rights reserved. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.